Hey everybody, Jeremy Markovich here. Two quick notes before we get going. First, this podcast has a new home. It's now part of the North Carolina Rabbit Hole, which you can find at ncrabbithole.com. There you can check out previous episodes of Away Message. You can find any new episodes that we're putting out. And if you like this podcast, I think, no guarantees, but I think you will like my weekly newsletter. It is about weird North Carolina stuff comes out every Thursday. It is free if you want it to be, and you can sign up at ncrabbithole.com. Second, this episode was produced during my time at Our State Magazine. Now, I happen to think that most of it still holds up, but some of the promo codes and websites that I mention may no longer work. Okay, here's the show. We can pull over right here, and I guess show you approximately where the bomb was hanging at. You want in your pair of shoes. All right. All right. Let's get out right here. Today, I am riding around eastern North Carolina with a guy named Billy Reeves. We're in his brand new pickup truck, and he's showing me around this tiny little collection of farmhouses and fields and country roads that make up a place called Faro. That's F-A-R-O. When this bomb it was, had a parachute hooked to it, it was caught up in these trees right down here in this vicinity. Billy's in his 70s now, but he's lived here all his life. Which means when somebody shows up in Pharaoh and asks about the bombs, Billy is usually the guy who shows them around and tells them the story. Do you ever get tired of telling the story? I made a statement the other day, this is the last one I'm going to do, and that probably ain't true. So here's Billy's story. When he was 17 years old, John F. Kennedy had just become president. Ask not what your country can do for you. We were in the thick of the Cold War. Russia today is regarded as a grave threat to our nation. And Billy lived on a farm about 10 miles away from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro. And based at Seymour Johnson were these fairly new, very large B-52 bombers. A wingspan of 185 feet, the mightiest bomber in history. B-52s were always flying over Billy's farm. So you were used to seeing them over overhead. Used to seeing the big planes. And how often were you thinking, I wonder, you know. Well, it always runs through your mind if what one would fall. We never dreamed that one would fall. But in the early morning hours of January 20th, 1961, Billy hears this noise. I will never forget, Jeremy, that sound. And I knew in my mind that that sound was a plane falling. And he gets up out of bed, looks outside, across the road, into a field. I'm standing at my window. This plane was way up here in the air. And it was, he'd done that. And when it hit the ground, it exploded twice. And fire shot up behind, way above the trees. There was debris, fire, that woods was a fire. There was debris scattered everywhere out here. So you, you remember everything that happened like it was yesterday. Just like it was yesterday. I, I remember how scared we were. I, we didn't have a telephone. The next morning, after we had been evacuated at my aunt's house, they had a television. And that's when we heard it was a B-52 armed with nuclear bombs. Okay, let's not understate this. On a cold winter night in 1961, an Air Force bomber broke apart in the sky over eastern North Carolina 
and two of the most powerful nuclear weapons the world has ever seen fell out of it. One had a parachute and floated down to the ground. The other, just like the plane, slammed into a tobacco field across the road from Billy's house. And about an hour later, the Air Force shows up. This place was swarmed with military people. I mean, tons and tons and tons of them. Everybody in the area is evacuated. We were gone three days. And when Billy gets back, the military is still there. Then the next thing was it was exciting to watch the big heavy equipment coming in and and had to run electricity and, and wires. It was like a big carnival. They set up across the road from Billy's house and start digging, trying to find the second nuclear bomb. My mother made tons of hot chocolate and coffee to give to young Air Force guys. She ends up giving them a lot of things to drink because the Air Force guys were there for a long time. And then one day, about five months after the crash, they stop digging, they fill up the hole, pack up, and leave. I mean, the U.S. Air Force, the United States government, didn't want to talk about this thing. So everything was a hush-hush deal. But today, we know a lot more about what happened. We know the first bomb was disarmed and taken away fairly quickly. And then we know the second bomb, well, the Air Force did find that one buried deep in the ground, and they were able to dig it up and pull it out. But we also know that they didn't get everything. Now, let's pull in right here and get out. And we're going to walk down there. All right, you ready? Yeah. Billy and I walk out into a field right to the spot where the hole was. Here's the story from what I've been told. The Air Force has legal rights on this piece of property. And the reason why the Air Force still has an easement on this property is because somewhere down below our feet is a very important piece of that nuclear weapon still in the ground. It's whatever whatever is out here is still whatever somewhere out here. out here. Whatever is out here of that the fragments of what's left is in this ground. So what exactly is down there? How dangerous is it? And why didn't the Air Force just dig it up? Why did it leave it there? It turns out there's a man who knows the answers to all of those questions. A man who was sent in by the Air Force to find and disarm both bombs. A man who couldn't talk about any of it until a few years ago. And a man who picked up the phone when I called and told me everything. So your job is to find something that is the size of a volleyball that is radioactive, that has fallen out of the sky and hit the ground at about 700 miles per hour and burrowed deep into a swamp. Forgive me making a joke, but listening to the way you just described it, I don't want that job. (laughs) But that was your job. Yeah, that was my job. From Our State Magazine, this is Away Message, a podcast about what you find in hard-to-find places. I'm Jeremy Markovich. So really, the only reason the guy you just heard from is allowed to talk is because of this guy. My name is Joel Dobson of Greensboro, and I'm retired. And you wrote a book. Yes. uh, After I retired, uh, I became interested in an event that occurred in 1961 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Joel was in the Air Force back in the 1960s, but he'd never heard about the crash or the nuclear bombs. And when he does finally hear about it from his own son, he is fascinated. The B-52, on a cold winter night, (laughs) 
1961, was attempting to land at Goldsboro. It was a routine training mission. A wing broke off of this B-52, which is a very unusual accident for the thing to come apart in midair. Three crew members died. Five others survived when they parachuted out. These two H-bombs spun out of the belly of the plane while it was twisting and turning to its side. The wings were coming off. Okay, I know I'm going to say this a lot, but I feel like I have to say it again. Two nuclear weapons, specifically two hydrogen bombs, fell out of a crashing plane, slammed into the ground near Goldsboro, and did not explode. And as Joel keeps researching, he finds out what could have happened if they did explode. Well, it would create a um, crater about a third of a mile across. And from there, things get worse. It would cause serious destruction to every uh, building within about a five-mile radius and meant that anybody out in the open would die instantly of uh, about 17 miles across, and there would be more destruction the further away you go. That is just the immediate effect. I mean, a, a release of radiation that will cause unknown cancers and deaths for years after that. As Joel keeps on looking into all this, he realizes he has to go see the place where this happened. So on the way back from the beach one day, my wife and I and another couple stopped in this little community of Pharaoh. He starts asking around, and some people are like, well, we know about the crash and the bombs, but that's about all we can tell you. They said, we can't talk about it. It's been classified. And so that uh, encouraged me to start digging around for uh, information that's been released by FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act. And he's able to get his hands on a lot of documents, documents that had been once classified, but were now approved to be released to the public. And on several of the documents, one particular name keeps coming up. The name on there was a Lieutenant Jack Revell. In 2011, 50 years after the accident, Joel tracks him down. So I sent him an email and thinking I might hear from him, or maybe not in a week or two. But he immediately called me and he said, who are you and what are you doing? I immediately called him and said, hey, hey Joel, at this time, you know, he and I had never met, never talked before. And you can't talk about stuff like this in the open. It's all classified. And he tells me not anymore. So once you realize that you can start telling your story, do you like immediately tell your wife, like, hey, I have something to tell you about uh, about what I used to do? Yeah. And Jack Ravel has one hell of a story to tell. Back in those days, I was a first lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And while he's stationed in Japan... He starts talking to guys in the EOD program. That's short for Explosive Ordnance Disposal. It seems fascinating, so he signs up. When I completed my uh, nearly six months of training, I was assigned by the Air Force to be the commander of an EOD detachment located at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Now, part of his job, whenever there was a broken arrow, which is the code name for an accident involving a nuclear weapon, Jack would lead a team of men who would go there, defuse the bomb, and clean up the radiation. How old were you when you got this call to go to Goldsboro? I guess I would have been 25. What were you like at age 25? Crazy. What made you crazy? I was single. I was driving a 1959 MGA 
Yeah, had one of the first car telephones. That's like James Bond stuff. Was that impressive when you went on dates? Like, we were like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm really important. I have this phone in my car, you know. That, that all goes without saying. But when the call to go to Goldsboro comes in, Jack is sound asleep. I got a call from my squadron commander. He just says, Jack, I got a real one for you. This is like, I guess, around 5 o'clock in the morning. I, I got my clothes on, drove my car down to the flight line. I met with the pilot of the aircraft that's going to fly me down there. And he says, boy, you must be somebody special because I've never been cleared to take off before I even got in the airplane. A couple hours later, we landed at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base uh, in uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina. And there was a, uh, a, I think it was a staff sergeant waiting for me. He drove me up to the site of the first weapon. And at that point, uh, he says, well, what do you think? I said, what? It's a bomb. was a hydrogen bomb, a bomb with the potential to lead to the end of the world, leaning up against the tree, its parachute tangled in the limbs. Jack got there before any of his team members, and he rendered the bomb safe pretty much by himself. You know, there was no big deal. The hard part started thereafter when they, they, they told me that there was a second bomb. So you didn't know about the second bomb until you were out on the first one? That's right. Are you thinking at some point, like, well, this was kind of quick. It's textbook. I'm going to get to go home. And then somebody drops drops that on you? Yeah, I drops that bomb on me, yeah. <laughs> now, the first bomb floated down to the ground by parachute, but the second one did not. It hit the ground doing about 700 miles per hour, burrowed deep below the surface, and broke apart. So they said, uh, we, th- we think the bomb is in there. I said, has anybody checked? No. And I said, okay, well, what I need is something long and wooden. Why wouldn't, they asked. Because we don't want a spark. And so somebody found one. They think it was in the back of a, uh, a truck cab. And I started pushing it down there. I could feel something solid. I said, there's something down there. I don't know what it is but there's something there that's worth worth investigating. When Jack's team arrives, they all realize they won't be able to get to what's down there with just a few shovels and spades. So Jack calls in the heavy equipment, and everybody starts digging. Immediately, there is a problem. But this was swampland, and so as a result, uh, every time we started taking earth out, earth from further out came piling in and refilling the hole. So to make the hole deep enough... They also had to make it really, really wide. And by the time we were finished eight days later, it was like several football fields. What's happening during all of this eight days? All the funny stuff that usually went on during training back at Wright-Patterson disappeared completely. Everybody was dead serious. Did it feel like a long eight days? The longest. What is the thing that you are trying to find, like it's the most important thing for you to find and find it quickly? The uh, core of, in the primary, which has you know, plutonium and uranium and 92 detonators. What does that look like? Like, what's the comparison? The nuclear portion of plutonium and uranium in a sphere is about the size uh, of a volleyball. And it's gray and rough. And all of this is in the mud, in the middle of you know, cold and snow and rain. Uh, and the water that we were standing in that was uh, coming up from the... Uh, because we, we finally dug down 
below the water table. Are you feeling around like with bare hands? Like how are you pulling oh, stuff out gloves. of the mud? Those are the same gloves I was wearing when I, I picked up the core and brought it up the ladder to uh, the uh, surface of the ground. And so the most dangerous thing, the thing that could detonate and cause a nuclear blast, Jack picks it up, puts it against his chest, climbs up a rickety wooden ladder, and carries it out of the hole, wearing only gloves in his fatigues. A week and a day after the bombs were dropped, the biggest threat is over. When does it hit you, the magnitude of what you've done? That, that I remember very clearly. The next morning I got up, took a shower, and I decided it was time to let my folks, remember I was single at the time, uh, let my folks know where I've been, what I've been doing within the realm of uh, uh, security classifications. Because they, they had not heard from me by phone or letter uh, during the entire eight days that I was gone. And so I sat down at the kitchen table to handwrite a letter. Started to write, like, Dear Mom and Dad, and my hand started to shake. And I, I, I just couldn't help myself. I laughed. I said, My God, I'm worried. Picture a 25 year old who's kept all this nervous energy inside himself after eight days of messing about with uh, hydrogen bombs. And all of a sudden, I'm about to start describing where I'd been, what I was doing to my folks. And my hand started to shake. It was just nervous energy. But that, it was at that point that I started to recognize the enormity of, of what my men and I had been involved in. But the story was far from over. Because long after Jack left, the military continued to dig and dig and dig. What they were looking for when we come back. suns lights hundreds of miles of the Pacific, and the force of a million tons of TNT is released. This is Away Message. I'm Jeremy Markovich. So far, we've talked about how two hydrogen bombs accidentally fell in eastern North Carolina back in 1961. Now, there is a lot of debate about how close those bombs were to going off. Without getting too technical here, a nuclear bomb has something called an arm safe switch. According to Joel Dobson, they rendered it safe by disconnecting a very important switch called an arm safe switch. On the first weapon, Jack found the switch was in the safe position. But when they found the second bomb, the one that had burrowed into the ground and broke apart, one of Jack's men found the switch in the arm position. It's hard to say how it got that way. And Jack says it's also hard to say precisely how close the bombs were to going off. And anybody that says that they can is a liar. I don't know what the chances of detonation are, but it's not zero. That's the main thing. Jack Ravel says if just one of those bombs would have gone off, it would have caused a chain reaction. The military calls it a sympathetic detonation. And that chain reaction would have caused the second bomb to blow up as well. And that could have changed the entire geography of this state. There would have been a bay or a... Uh... Uh, a Gulf of North Carolina, and the, the eastern seaboard would have, the whole profile would have changed. Would it literally have created a hole that would have filled in with, with ocean water? Like, it would have been that that large. Yeah. 
See that I don't I don't I don't have any way to process that kind of information. You know what I mean? Like I can't I can't fathom that. Well, it was many fathoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to understand the next part of this story, you have to know the difference between a regular atomic bomb, the kind that was dropped in World War II, and a hydrogen or thermonuclear bomb, the kind that fell on eastern North Carolina. Remember that thing that Jack was looking for, the volleyball-sized pit of plutonium and uranium with detonators all around it? Setting that off creates a nuclear blast equivalent to the one that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the hydrogen bomb is much bigger. Each one had the potential of about 250 Hiroshima bombs. A hydrogen bomb also has a primary. Again, that gray radioactive volleyball. But there's another piece called a secondary. And it looks like a small torpedo without any fins. Like, like how big is it? Like a few feet long? Yeah, about three feet. That little torpedo has a different mix of radioactive material inside it. And it turns the nuclear explosion from one that splits atoms into one that fuses atoms together. That releases a lot more energy and makes the explosion exponentially bigger. You know, that's the kind that, if it didn't destroy the world, it'd make it a terrible place to live. And the secondary, that little torpedo, that is the thing that the military never found. Why was it left in the ground? Because we didn't know where to search for it. Now, you don't have to worry if you're just walking around in eastern North Carolina, because Jack says by itself, the secondary is not going to explode. There are no detonators surrounding it, and if the military could find it, it would. But it can't. Millions and millions of dollars were spent uh, on trying to locate that, and uh, it never has been. And until the ground-penetrating radar or some equivalent technology uh, is identified and, and used, it will never be found. Not only back then there was no way to tell where this thing was, there's really no way to tell today. Nope. Jack and others say the secondary doesn't pose any immediate threat. The government tests the groundwater and checks for radiation and says everything's safe. And today, crops grow right over the top of wherever it is. There are no visible signs here. And so the only thing that remains, other than that missing piece of the bomb, are the stories. And Jack's story is not over. After Goldsboro, uh, the Air Force sent me to the EOD squadron in Japan. A year and a half after that, he takes part in hydrogen bomb testing at Christmas Island in the Pacific. But after 11 and a half years, he's had enough. So he leaves the Air Force, goes to Oklahoma State University, gets his doctorate, and spends the rest of his career working mostly for aeronautics companies in Southern California, where he still lives today, at age 82. What's happened kind of in the last couple of years? I'm going to say about four years ago, maybe five years ago, my general practitioner told me that my latest physical had revealed that I had anemia. And I challenged that. I said, I've always been a very high-energy guy. But Jack got a second test and found out he did have anemia. And then doctors ran more tests and found out that Jack had a form of blood cancer. And today, he needs a blood transfusion every two weeks. And I said, Doc, look, I'm, I'm a very realistic kind of person. How much longer do I have? And she says, well, I can't say for sure, but based on the statistics, 
I would estimate that you've got about three years, but that's not an exact number. That's a ballpark guess. I said, well, thank you. I have one more question for you. This is me and the doctor talking. Uh, will I ever experience any pain? She says, none that I know of. So how, how do I pass away? She says, probably in your sleep. So that's, that's my future. How often do you think about that? All too often. How often would you think about it? A lot. Yeah, you bet. There are two things that Jack wants now that his story is out in the open. One, he wants compensation from the government for his exposure to radiation. And two, he'd like some sort of military recognition for the rest of his men. Some lawyers are working with Jack on both of those issues. All of this, I'm told by multiple people, is still in progress. But there's something else that Jack wants. Joel was telling me there was a picture that you were trying to find of you walking out of the, the hole with, you know, holding the pit. Yeah, when, when I came out of the, the hole in the ground holding, holding the pit, and I did not realize at that time that a picture was taken of me uh, holding the, uh, the device. In the late 90s, when Jack's story was still classified, he was giving a talk at an atomic lab in New Mexico. And after he's done, he walks over to a nearby nuclear history museum. And when I got to the Broken Arrow area, I was looking around, and there's this picture of me in 1961, holding the uh, uh, the core, and I about came, I literally lost. I didn't, but I felt like I was losing control of my bowels. Uh, oh my God, it's documented. So at that moment, you, that was the only way that you could prove publicly that you were the one that did it. Yeah, because you know there was my picture. You know. At some point in the years that followed, the picture was taken down and it's disappeared. But think about it. If you saw a picture of a guy climbing out of a muddy hole, holding the most dangerous part of a nuclear weapon up against his chest, would you believe it? Jack's story seems unbelievable. And yet, it all happened. It's a real story. A story that can finally be told. Jack Ravel and his men did an unbelievably dangerous job and did it well. You told me earlier that you remembered all this like it just happened. Why, why do you think that is? Because I'd contained all of it. You know, I, you know, I didn't talk to anybody about all this for all these years. And all of a sudden, I just wanted to get it out of my system. And Jack wants to talk about it as long as he can and as long as we're willing to listen. Away Message is written and edited by me, J. 
Jeremy Markovich and produced by me and James Michkowski. Our digital manager is Kimberly Simpson and our editor-in-chief is Elizabeth Hudson. Music in this episode is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Our closing song is Becoming My Own Home, a new single from the collection, a great band based right here in North Carolina. You can read Joel Dobson's book called The Goldsboro Broken Arrow, which gets into everything in frightening detail. We have provided a link in the show notes for this episode. This podcast is a production of Our State Magazine, an employee-owned company that's been celebrating North Carolina for 85 years. If you like this podcast and would love to have a gorgeous, beautiful magazine delivered to your door every month, head over to OurState.com, click on subscribe, and use the promo code AWAY to get $5 off a year's subscription. It is our way of saying thank you for listening to this show. And one more thing. Back in the 1960s, Jack met his wife in a way that, well, we sort of take for granted now. She and I met at a computer dating service when I came back from Vietnam in 67, and she was from London, England. So let me back up here real quick. If you had a phone in your car in the 1960s, you know, whatever, years before cell phones, and then, and then you met your wife on a computer dating service, you know, years, decades before Match.com. Like, you, you, were, you were already, like, living in the future. Yeah, I've always been that way. As for the future of this podcast, we'll be back with our next episode about the round of golf that changed the city in a few weeks. This year I'm becoming my own.